the whole idea of, sort of graduating as a Harvard psychiatrist, blah, 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 blah. So it makes you feel like you, you have to have some kind of competency, which you do. But I think as an experienced clinician, you've got to become the federal equivalent. Mm. This is Brian Clark from Copyblogger, and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy on ProductiveInsights.com. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.ProductiveInsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Hello, and welcome back to my conversation with Dr. Srini Pillay from Harvard Medical School. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry there. And we are talking about the power of being unfocused and how to harness that power to increase your productivity and your impact in your life and your work. In part one of this two-part conversation, Dr. Pillay and I talked about what we mean by the power of unfocus, and we explored that a little bit. We looked at the power of the art of surrender and how to master it, how to use some low-key activities to increase that diffused focus, which helps you to increase your impact. We talked about psychological Halloweenism. We talked about Steve Jobs and a lot more. So in this second part, which you can find at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 143, Dr. Pillay and I talk about Steve Jobs and how he used his intuition and this holistic approach to come up with some truly groundbreaking breakthroughs. We then go on to talk about creating your psychological core, your center of gravity, as it were, or your mental six-pack, as he calls it. I love that term, which will help you to develop your me-ness and will help you to anchor yourself to explore that holistic approach. We talked about the importance of accepting and exploring your shadow or your darker side, because according to Srini, just focusing on the positive is like running with one leg. It is important to understand your limitations and your darker side and embrace that to be able to really bring your whole self to mastery. He talks about how strategy can be a bit overrated and lots more. So I hope you enjoy the second part of this two-part conversation, which you can find at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 143. And if you haven't already heard the first part of this two-part conversation, I recommend you go and check it out at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 142 where you can download a PDF copy of the show notes. You can do the same if you go to ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 143. Now, there are quite a few related episodes that would be useful to you if you enjoy this one. I'll link to those in the show notes as well. And I'd just like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by the Productive Insights podcast editing service, which takes away all the pain of podcast editing. All you've got to do is upload your file onto Dropbox and we'll take care of the publishing of the episode onto your WordPress site and onto iTunes. Book a call with me on callashroy.com to discuss how we can get started. Now, without further ado, here is Dr. Srini Pillay in part two of this two-part conversation on how to use the power of unfocus to maximize your productivity and your effectiveness. On with the show. In terms of Steve Jobs, he's actually an example I use in the book many times because in the Stanford address, he talks about one particular thing that he talks about that I think captures what I'm saying in Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, is that you can't join the dots of your life backward. That's right. I remember that. You can't join them moving forward. And so he took a calligraphy class when he dropped out of college. And, you know, there was no reason for him to take the class. He was just interested in calligraphy. But he was self-connected, which is one of the things that happens when you activate the unfocused circle. 
So just to explain that a little bit, focus is the parts of yourself that are represented in your brain when you are focused are things like your LinkedIn profile, you know, what's your gender, what's your age, where do you work, what's your job, concrete things. So focus is like picking up solid pieces of food. Unfocus is essentially like tasting the delicious melange of flavors in a soup or in the, in the broth that's left behind. It's also like inviting chopsticks so that you make connections across areas of the brain that are very far apart. And it's a little bit like inviting a marrow spoon to the table. So you dig into all the nooks and crannies of your brain and you pick up memories like you know the scent of your grandmother or things that may not be relevant to the situation but give you a stronger sense of self. And I think what Steve Jobs talked about, which is you can't not being able to, like he didn't know that the calligraphy was going to impact what was happening later in his life when he developed fonts for the Mac. In the same way, we need to create times in our lives where we have these things that don't necessarily make sense. Because one of the sentences I, I, I neglected to complete earlier on is that when your mind is wandering, the default mode network or the unfocused circuit is on, the lateral prefrontal cortex, which is the sort of the, the, the thinking brain, is actually guiding the wandering. So you may think that your mind is just wandering crazily, but the reality is that your brain is sort of up to something because it's, it's on the lookout, but it's on the lookout with a certain sensibility guiding it. Yes. So I think a lot of people feel like the unfocus is just some kind of nothing. I mean, I, I agree, distraction is very destructive. Yes. But... If you build these unfocused periods into your life, you start to develop the stronger sense of self. And it's funny because it's not just Steve Jobs, right? It's, and so if you think about Steve Jobs' advice to Mark Zuckerberg when he wasn't sure what to do with Facebook, he said, go to an ashram in India and <laughs> walk around and just forget everything. It's like, you know, most people would be like, what are you talking about? I don't have the time for that. <laughs> but he did that. And in doing that, his brain was able to make connections and he was able to come up with something. Bill Gates, for example, takes several weeks off a year. And, and a lot of different people sort of use these unfocused techniques, but because it's unconscious, they don't report it. So you ask most people how they did something. Try to do it. If I gave you Steve Jobs' business plan and I said, here's every step of what he did, how many people do you think would be successful? Probably not many. Probably not. Because, yeah. you know, it's like if Roger Federer gave you a class, you wouldn't turn into Roger Federer. Absolutely Because not. you would have to be Roger Federer. Yes. The, the amount of intuition he has in every shot, it's just, yes. it's poetry in motion, like I said earlier. Right. And that is an embodiment of more than just his physical competencies. There's a holisticness to it, which, by the way, I don't see in Nadal as much. No, you, no, you definitely don't. You don't see it in the body movement either. In fact, I read a report recently that said that Federer's coach said that when, when they talked about looking at his IBM stats and revisiting, he didn't want to look at it. said, you know, he goes, at this point... At that level of expertise, the call is not to necessarily practice the structure of what you're doing. It's to practice the improvisation. You know, it's an important piece of, of life. Even Einstein, actually, when he talked about the theory of relativity, said that the discovery was music. Yes. So although this may sound esoteric to the practical, you know, for those people who are going into work and saying, you know, that sounds great, but, you know, how do I, how do I actually capture this about myself? I want to say that it's tempting. It's addictive to believe that strategy is the way to go. But how many people have had business plans and strategies that have actually failed? The majority of people. So it's not just the plan or the strategy that matters. It's the self-connection. 
And I deeply believe that this ingenuity is possible in every human being. You know, you take the One Laptop for All project, for example, kids in rural Ethiopia who had never seen any technology whatsoever. You know, so in the One Laptop for All project, they thought, let's drop some tablets, you know, some, some computer tablets and see what they'll do. Now, yeah. these are people who don't even know anything about the technology. So they were like, you know, will they will try to eat them? Will they <laughs> sit on them? Like, you know, what, what exactly are they going to do? Well, within a couple of hours, they found the on-off switch. Shortly thereafter, they were singing ABC songs. And within a few weeks, they had hacked Android. The, these people don't have a degree in computer science. These are rural Ethiopian kids. Is it because there weren't any externally imposed limits, and so there was no ceiling to what they could achieve? Yeah, they were just curious. And so while I am a proponent of education for frameworks, even everything that I teach, I feel, is a framework, I am not a proponent of education without ingenuity. And I believe that ingenuity and natural curiosity is the way to actually get your goal. You know, I, I work with fund managers, for example. And the fund managers who are at the top of their game are not only analyzing all the data, they're analyzing the data, but they're building unfocused times into their days. I, I once interviewed Peter Buffett, Warren Buffett's son, and talked to him about what it felt like when he was you know, having Warren Buffett as his father. And he said it was a very so funny experience because it was his father would be staring at the newspaper, and so it would look focused. But then all of a sudden, it would look like he was some kind of, he had some kind of monk consciousness. He would come out like a Buddha of finance because his whole idea <laughs> was, he was so lost in what was done. And like yes. we talked about, you know, with mindfulness, it starts off with focus on the breath, but then you get immersed in a different state of consciousness. And most people are rushing from one thing to another and they don't have this unfocused time built in. So they miss out on who, on who they are. You know, the, 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 uh, the famous philosopher Krishnamurti, who actually talked about... Yes, I've read a lot of his work. Yeah, he's a you know, fantastic thinker, and, and, a, and he's interesting. He's an atheist philosopher. He had a conversation with a, a theosophist um, who was Houston Smith at MIT. And Houston Smith asked Krishnamurti, um, do you believe that clarity is possible? And, you know, in his classical style, I'm sort of contemplating it, he said, well, you know, he said, do you think lucidity is possible? He said, you know, well, do you mean, by that, do you mean clarity? He said, yeah. He said, I should say so. I, I think clarity is possible. And he says, well, how should one achieve that? And Krishnamurti said, by abandoning the question, how? <laughs> and, and he thought, and he said, well, oh, you know, come on, there's got to be a way. He said, clarity is freedom from authority. It's not tell me what to do. Because when you're following instructions, you are following, it's good to learn. It's important in the learning phase. But there's no clarity there. Real and authentic clarity. Things you see in the flow state. Or if you see you know, in American football, Tom Brady's a hero. And sort of like you watch his focus on what he's doing. He's focused, but he's also lost in some kind of mental state of clarity. Because there's, while there is a technique and there is a strategy, you still have to integrate variables. And according to Krishnamurti, the idea of simply following a procedure is not what's going to activate your ingenuity. So for those people who are living moderate lives, who are saying to themselves, you know, I mean, I'm fine. I've got what I want. Uh, I would say, remember that there's much more in you and that there's much more to access within yourself and that people like me can offer you frameworks. But really, you know, I can, I can say, I think you should doodle. I think you should have positive constructive daydreaming, build naps into your day, practice psychological Halloweenism at the dinner table with your kids once a week. Say, today we're all going to be different people and we're going to try to solve this problem by being different people. You know, go for a walk, go for a meandering walk. I mean, these are things you can build into your day. But doing these things 
without giving yourself time to be who you are is really problematic. You know, and I, I think a really profound example of this was someone I met in the hospital recently who was an extremely famous pe- a person who had done a lot for society. And he was depressed and suicidal. And, you know, he was over 65. And I, and I said to him, you know, but you've done so much for the world. Like, what is happening that you actually feel that depressed and suicidal? And he said, I did so much for the world, but to tell the truth, I don't think I ever put aside any time for myself. Right. And so now I don't know where I am, and I don't know what happened in the last 20 years. Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm out of context. I, I don't know what to do. And so rather than regret that backwards, you know, I, Jeff Bezos, who I also use as an example in the book, you know, the way he makes decisions is he uses what he calls a regret minimization framework. Okay. Which is, you know, when I'm 60 or that, when, when I think about my life, will I regret not doing that? Yeah. And if you regret not doing that, then he'll do it. So, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a cool technique to use. And I think that for a lot of people who are in their lives at a particular point in time and thinking, oh, you know, I'm older now, and lost my opportunity. Remember that there are two ways to think about self-esteem, another unfocused technique. Most people are into self-esteem maintenance, SEM. Mm-hmm. But the goal is really self-esteem optimization. Okay which is SEO. <laughs> and what you want to do is actually raise the bar in your life and invite yourself to live out the fullness of your potential. And if you don't know how immediately, don't worry. Firstly, if you get there, you're probably going to get there unconsciously. But your brain needs to have the instruction that you want more. You know, if you say to your brain something's not possible, it says, thank you, good night, I'm going to sleep. Yeah. You know, like if you say, but if you say to your brain something's possible, I just, we just have to look. Then it collects data. And it tries to help you figure out how to get to your goal. So, you know, I, I really believe that that this idea of ingenuity is one of the things that truly inspired me to write this book, even though I didn't want to make it a philosophical treatise. I wanted it to have practical advice, which is what's in the book. But at the same time, I feel like the philosophy of ingenuity is left out of most self-help programs or most sort of you know ideologies because people think that the expertise is in the expert. But the expertise is really in you. The expert can offer you frameworks. And I think what you do is actually to help people figure out how to access these frameworks and see, do I like this framework or not? And can I use it? But you still have to be present. Yes, that's such a good point. The embodiment, you know, you have to become, in a sense, the embodiment of the framework, but not only the framework. You have to bring your special source. You can't be disconnected from your persona your persona has to be in some way transformed while still being rooted in your original meanness yes absolutely and you can't afford to forego that no and and i'm in the book i call that psychological center of gravity right and i say that's your mental six-pack so in the same way that you've got to develop a strong core if you want to lift weight you can't just develop your biceps to look to develop strong biceps your core has to contract your psychological core has to be present. And I think at a more philosophical level, again, I think most people are afraid to connect with their psychological core because every one of us has some kind of shadow, some yes. kind of dark side, yes. some kind of desire that maybe is not socially acceptable, some kind of behavior that's not socially acceptable. And so what I say is you can go through life with only your strengths, but that's like walking on one leg. When you accept the shadow and explore the shadow and explore your dark side, 
then you are coming to life with the fullness of your authenticity. You don't have to be transparent. You don't have to tell everybody about it. You can just, but knowing that you're present, I think it's important. You know, I, I think for many years, you know, the whole idea of sort of graduating as a Harvard psychiatrist, blah, blah, blah. So it makes you feel like you, you have to have some kind of competency, which you do because you learn a lot of theory and a lot of frameworks and you understand chemistry and you understand brain biology. So you can help people understand that. But I think most experienced clinicians would say to you, I don't really know what I'm going to do. Because it's one thing to be cognitive about, well, let me help this person with this cognition. And the cognitive frameworks are helpful. But I think as an experienced clinician, you've got to become the federal equivalent. Mm. You've got to intuit what that person wants. And a very overt example of this is I, I did a behavioral treatment with someone who had a flying phobia recently. There's a very classic protocol of you know going through systematic desensitization, think about the plane, go on the plane. But the reality is that he was successful, and he said this afterwards. He said, I was successful not because I was remembering all the cognitive steps, but because at some point you asked me when we were sitting in the lounge, how is your meaning and purpose going to change once you're able to fly? And he said, as I stepped onto the plane, I thought to myself, I can now go on vacations with my wife. I can now take my kids to different places. I can now begin to feel my physical exploration that will help my mental exploration. Mm. And that's what really inspired me to get there. Right. And that kind of stuff, I think, happens through contemplation, through reverie, through unfocused techniques. And so, again, I implore people to consider the fact that we've got this beautiful brain circuit called the default mode network, which is the unfocused circuit. Why not tap into it? Something else you mentioned earlier on also was the importance of visioning. You don't necessarily have to understand how you're going to get to the goal, but you need to challenge your brain and you need to summon the brain's resources by saying, this is achievable. And once you say this is achievable and your brain believes it, then the how kind of figures itself out to some degree because the subconscious mechanisms kick in. Absolutely. And there are actually, I mean, there's a lot of evidence to show that when you create an image, it activates the action parts of the brain or the motor cortex, the supplementary motor cortex. And that's because the image is a blueprint and your brain's beginning to warm up to what that blueprint is. But there are ways in which you can build a stronger image, which I describe in the book, like, you know, imagining in the first person and the third person. The idea of imagining coming from behind so that you're coming from a position of adversity to a position of strength, making the image multimodal, not just imagining yourself in a yacht, but smelling the ocean and seeing what's around you and hearing the waves, making sure that the image is stronger. So you, you change the color dimensions. The more, the more you refine the image, the more strongly your brain is going to activate. And I think a lot of people, I actually said this to somebody yesterday, which was sort of funny because I'm going to be going to the Netherlands to promote the, the Dutch version of the book. And this person randomly called me out of the blue in the Netherlands and said, listen, I, you know, I'd love to, I hear you're coming to the Netherlands. I know you have speaking engagements, but I'd, I'd love to be able to create a speaking engagement with you. Do you have a day? And so I didn't know who this person was. And I, and I thought there's something intuitively I just felt was interesting about this person. So we talked and essentially in, in three weeks, we've managed to figure out a way to fill the space and let people know who's going to be there. And he sort of shyly admitted to me yesterday, he actually said, I just want to let you know you were on my vision board, but I didn't want you to think I was crazy. And I <laughs> said, what's your vision board? <laughs> and he said, I literally found you on the internet. And so I put, I put your face up on my vision board and I said, 
at some point, I'm going to connect with this person and, and I'm going to help him. And I said, well, it doesn't have to be that magical. I mean, perhaps you heard something, you were interested, and your brain had not reached the threshold of having the courage to connect with this person. So every day you look at the picture, every day you're reminded that that's what you want to do, and your brain's threshold eventually is surpassed, and then you're like, oh, what the hell, I'll write this guy an email. Yeah. If he doesn't respond, he doesn't respond. Right. So the vision board is an important reminder to your brain. Our brain is constantly, you know, short-term memory is like a cup. Every day we're filling it, things drop out, things yeah. come in. To the extent that we can remind ourselves with these visions and in a potent way, because that's what imagery is, we are much more likely to get to our goals. And I think most sports people would attest to that as well. I typically try and do a bit of a wrap-up and then talk about some action steps people can take to make this real in their lives. So we talked about the fact that focus is important, you explained that 46.9% of our day is spent daydreaming and that 2.5% of us are supertaskers and capable of doing more than one thing at a time. We talked about how hobbies actually defend against dementia and the importance of hobbies. Uh, we talked about mastering the art of surrender. That was in the context of the handshake analogy where you can't be so mechanical about shaking hands. There's some degree of believing that the ha your hand is going to meet the other person's hand once you've achieved a certain amount of mastery around that process. We also talked about techniques to surrender. You talked about positive constructive daydreaming and the three steps, which is planned daydreaming time, uh, be doing something low-key like walking and positive wishful imagery. We talked about psychological Halloweenism, which is effectively imagining yourself as in the role of somebody else. So if you're the rigid librarian versus the eccentric artist, you're more likely as an eccentric artist to come up with more out-of-the-box ideas. And perhaps rigid librarian is appropriate in some situations where you need to really hunker down and just focus on the tactical aspects of things. I really loved what you said about the fact that strategy is sometimes overrated to the extent that while it is important, it is sort of like a hygiene factor, but it isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all. That's not where everything stops. The, you, I, I love the fact that you talked about the importance of a certain amount of self-actualization, and I think you called it a psychological center of gravity, did you say? That's right. Yeah, so you need to bring yourself, whatever that is, to the game. You need to bring a bunch of skills and certain structures, but you need to bring Srini, who is Srini, and that, that meanness, uh, that psychological center of gravity has to be brought to bear to the situation for it not to be a corrosive experience for the individual and for you know the, the greater good to be achieved from all perspectives. Yes, absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that? No, I think that's a great summary. I, I think what I would say to people is that's a lot of information and it's a lot of stuff to think about taking on, especially if you've got a busy day and you're going to be juggling a million things. But remember, there is a juggler's mindset. Like People can juggle once they learn how to juggle. In fact, multitasking can be taught and your brain can be prepared for productive unfocus. So start with one of these techniques, schedule it in at a time of your day when you feel like it would be most helpful, like whenever you feel like there's going to be a natural slump in your day, like after lunch, you could build in the walk, mid-afternoon, you could build in the five-minute nap, and, and see how it changes your life. And, and I think a lot of people would will support the prediction that by building in at least one to two unfocused periods in your day, you will learn the value of taking care of your brain in this way. And once you do that, 
you can start to become the Federer of unfocused uh, sort of learning how to juggle what you need to juggle to get there. Now, the biggest action steps, apart from the things that you just mentioned, which is trying to build some degree of unfocus into your day, I think one of the best things our listeners can do is go and get a copy of this book. So how do they do that? Thank you. So it's, it's Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind. And the book is in any local bookstore or on Amazon. Okay, so they can get it on Kindle or on Amazon, and we'll be sure to link to that in our show notes as well. Thank you. And how do people find out more about you if they would like to learn more about you? So I, you can find out more about me at drsrinipillay.com. So it's okay. D-R-S-R-I-N-I-P-I-L-L-A-Y.com. Okay. And I also work with corporations where I help them use brain science to help uh, people get to their goals. And that's at neurobusinessgroup.com. So it's N-E-U-R-O and then the word business and the word group, all one word, dot com. And we would love to entertain any inquiries and any further curiosities that people have. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Srini. And thanks for having me. That was awesome. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today? 